Hello, it's me, Kevin, and I'm joined by Will. Hello, Kevin. How are you getting on? I'm not too bad. The summer is over. The second-rate show has run its course. Did you enjoy it? I absolutely did. I discovered some gems along the way. What was your favourite? I think my favourite was Vampire's Kiss. I think I... Really? I was really shocked by that one. What, What other ones were there? Tracks. Tracks was so much fun as well. Dead Heat, Living in Oblivion, um, Electric Dreams, Volunteers. I think Living in Oblivion was my favourite. Oh, I think actually, I think Living in Oblivion. No, I still think Vampire's Kiss was my favourite. Living in Oblivion was second. Well, that was a second rate show, but we got to watch a flop and see if we liked it. Thanks to everyone that listened to those episodes. I know that we had a good reaction from patrons on Discord and from people sending us emails. and, And thank you as well to Patrick for the Time Crimes episode. We're going to be doing more of those on our next hiatus. So we've been asking our Patreon backers to send us their recommendations. Yeah. We'll watch their films. Once we did that poll thing with Cinemile and with Patrick, I said, this is the way to go. Let our Patreons decide what we watch. And uh, yeah, and it, because it takes some of the workload off our shoulders. It's great. It does. And we don't get trapped watching crappy movies. Yes, 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 yes. Someone's already had an emotional investment in that particular film, which is great. And Kevin, it was great to do a crossover episode with the Cinemall. They were fantastic, Kathy and Dave. It was, yeah. Sunshine wasn't the best of movies, I don't think, that we could have done, but it was great to talk to them about it. They made it a good laugh. Exactly. That's the most important thing. We all had a fun time. That's the main thing. It's not about where you were, it's who you're with. Exactly. Yeah. How can I get into another room? <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> you heard it here first. Well, over the summer, we were putting out a colossal amount of episodes on our Patreon. And one of those was a little mini series that we called Your Best Bits. So what we thought we would do before season four begins is we would release those double episodes. They're very relaxed. They're very chilled out. And they're different to what we usually put up in the main feed. And our Patreon listeners have listened to these episodes over the summer and absolutely loved them. This is the episode where I asked Will, how did you get to where you are? And next week, Will's episode with me is going to be where he asked me, what's your problem? (laughs) We never get to the bottom of it. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to a very special or how do we say, a very random episode of The Mini Bits. This is Kevin, and I'm joined by... Me. Hello. Yes. Will. Me. How are you, me? I'm glad you changed it from being special to random, because I certainly don't think this might qualify as something special. But random is better, because this would be quite random. Yes. Uh, What's going on, Kevin? It's going to be like your best bits. So we mentioned on a prior episode of The Mini Bits that uh, I was going to ask you questions about your journey not your process right there's an awful lot of screenwriting podcasts out there where they talk about how do you write a script all the sort of the the nuts and bolts of doing the job and i find that less interesting or maybe not as interesting as what was the journey to get you to the point where you committed to doing this as a gig Mm -hmm. yeah because i think it's it's a personal journey and i i don't know all the steps of yours so I was just going to ask you a bunch of questions and see what what the um, the origin of Will was. Oh, God. I'd love to get my parents on. <laughs> <laughs> well, in 1978. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Dallas was on. 
Oh, God. JR's big brim hat that was getting us fired up. And so Ellen, like, she was looking fairly nice now, too. Go on. Uh, yeah. Um, these are just random questions, but they're sort of the questions that I think are quite formative. And so I thought I would just throw them at you. There's no pressure here. There's, there's, there's not really um, no right or wrong answers to these. It's just, uh, let's see what the steps were that took you from Will Collins growing up in Cantork watching movies to Will Collins uh, writing movies so the first thing I want to ask you is what was the first film or TV show that you can remember watching and and it getting its claws into you oh lordy 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 the first TV show oh Christ or film or anything just give me a second anything at all I'm just right I have to think about that now um. All right. Then the follow-up question: Was it a gradual thing for you to decide to work in film, or were there any sort of like epiphanies? Like yes. you've heard me mention in the past that I remember distinctively having this uh, come to Jesus moment. Yeah, watching Jurassic Park. I Anything like that for you. Yes, and I think I mentioned might have mentioned this early on in the podcast as well. Uh, it was a gradual thing. I think my situation was I grew up in in outside Cantork, uh, closer to the village of Castle Magnor, but very much a rural country boy. I grew up in a house with uh, two older brothers and mm-hmm. a family. My family, my immediate family, were a, a GAA, GAA family. They were into uh, hurling specifically and a bit of football. So I grew up in a very much a sporty family. And yeah. I didn't have that same gene as they had. So I, I What did also, you call yourself before you said you were an indoor child? I was an indoor kid. Yeah, I'm an, an indoor, indoor kid. kid. <laughs> Definitely an indoor kid. I hated, uh, I hated playing sports because I always lost. But also I just didn't have that competitive edge. I just I loved, loved playing with my toys. I loved, I think a big seminal one for me actually was, there was, this is before your time, but there were these um, collections of storyteller books that came out fortnightly. They were like little magazines you could get, but they came with a cassette tape. And right. so in one issue, you would have the first part of, let's say, The Wizard of Oz, like a, a, a retelling of The Wizard of Oz. You might have mm-hmm. another story, another story. And all these, you could, do, it was like a, you had your cassette tape, which was like the audiobook version. And you could mm-hmm. read along as you read along with the stories and the pictures. And you'd have to buy the next one to kind of continue with the story. And I remember being pretty obsessed with them. I would, I've listened, they, I, I can still hear the music of those tapes in my head to this day. On a dark and cloudy night, two tiny kittens crept out of the cave where they had been born. Yeah, so man. when you were playing with your toys, would you come up with scenarios? Oh, shit, like, yeah. Like set pieces, like this is a rescue mission or this is a, a shootout or whatever. Yeah, that was my happiest play moment. I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I was so happy just being in my room alone with whatever toys I had. And I would just come up. It, it always ended up with me creating some sort of scenario, action scenes. It was ge- there were generally big epic action scenes. I yeah. everything every character had a role or had some sort of scenario. And in actual fact, as it turns out, these are 
I was creating scenes. That's what I was doing. But were they influenced by movies or things you'd seen or were they just sort of, it was your own interpretation of what you thought would be cool? My own interpretation. I was just using what I had in hand. So they could be like, like Toy Story. You know, you had the, like the little plastic soldiers who were stuck in uh-huh. position and there could be He-Mans and there'd be Star Wars guys and they, and you would just take what you had in hand and create as, like create as kind of like just always epic kind of action adventure stories. And I love that shit. And how did that progress? Did you eventually get to writing stories or drawing or, or beyond just playing with the toys? Was there anything that sort of took it the creativity to a next step? I think, I don't think I ever had, I, I think when I was young, I, this is a story I tell young kids when I go, when I go in and give talks at schools. But I remember when I was young, I got really fed up one time. Uh, with my brothers because I was getting teased for whatever reason I was just getting bullied by them as usually but I just reached breaking point and I said fuck this I'm leaving I'm running away from home (laughs) and I sat down and I and I plotted it all out I said I'm just going to hit the road I'm going to move from you know I was going to I was just basically going to move to Cork I think that's where I was going towards um, the big I, bad city the big bad city but it was full of riches and full of possibility <laughs> and cinemas and all that sort of stuff so what I did was I I r- sat down and I, I said you know what what uh, my plan was I said you mightn't be fair to let my mother to, to not let my mother know where I went to so I was going to leave for uh, a goodbye note basically and a kind of a a, a a note that was incriminate my brothers for the source of my disappearance so I got out <laughs> Like I had a little, I remember it was like a little Return of the Jedi notebook and I wrote yeah. out my going away, my going away uh, message and I hid it in this like ornamental pot she had in the good room and I said she only like polishes these like once in a blue moon and you know, I'm going to be long gone and eventually she's going to find this mysterious note and she'll go, oh my God, my son, he ran away, he ran away and it was all their fault and they would get punished. How old were you? How old were you? I must have been like seven or eight. I was that young, you know? Oh, okay. But so, but the thing was, I do remember once I'd written that, my impulse to run away vanished and I'd gotten it out of my fucking system. Do you know what? I find, and I've used this myself uh, over the years, that when you have a grievance with somebody and they, they come up a lot in the business, yeah. you deal with people that are, they don't have your best interests in heart. So you can get quite hard done by at times. And sometimes yeah. you really feel fucked over and you want to give people a piece of your mind. And I find that if I write out why what they did was fucked and why it hurt me and why it annoys me or all that kind of stuff. And I don't send it, but I write it mm-hmm. and then I delete it. The act of taking it out of my head and into an external thing, like a, a piece of paper, it, it really stops me having to keep it in my head keep the 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 anxiety or the distress in my head yeah and and i can let it go it's like i've processed it by the act of it's quite cathartic writing in that way so i can totally understand why you writing all your feelings out and and preparing to send it and then not doing it uh, because you got out your system and you felt differently it, it makes sense to me yeah um and i continue to do that i continue to write Whenever I got felt had extreme emotions, I would write them like in places and forget I'd written them. And then I'd embarrassingly, embarrassingly, my parents would find them like in the back of like the map book that was in the glove box of the car. My parents might on their summer holidays <laughs> be going through it saying, Where, where's Tum? Where's Tum? And they go, what is all this here about not 
I don't know. You didn't get your Star Wars ties, you know, all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, What's this, Willem? Be, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. And I'd rip the page out or whatever it was. But um, you you asked me then, uh, did I have a specific moment? And I think I mentioned like, you know, a, cathar- a land of cathartic moment, a moment, a kind of a pivotal epif- uh, epiphany moment. And I did. And it was, uh, I remember one Saturday during the summer back in when I was about, I think maybe 11 or 12. Uh, my brothers had gone off to. I, I was old enough, basically, to be a ba- to 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 have videotapes as my babysitter. So instead yeah. of me having to go to matches, my parents would say if they're going to two matches, my parents would just take me into town beforehand, let me into the video library, let me rent two videotapes, and I would just watch those myself at home while they went away. So I was being left at home with tapes. Yeah, yeah. And you were, uh, forcing yourself as a latchkey kid. Yeah, I, I and I loved it. It was like a perfect. It was happy for them, happy for me. And uh, I remember watching Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, and it was the opening shot or the opening scene in the Obi Wan nightclub. And Indiana Jones is uh, after taking the poison, and he's looking for the antidote, and they want the jewels or whatever it was. And there's a moment where he they're shooting at him with Tommy guns. He dives behind a shield, uh, this big, huge uh, ornamental a big shield. bong thing. Yeah. And uh, grabs the sword, cuts the, cuts the ropes, it drops and it rolls across the nightclub and smashes through the window. He escapes to short round down below. But I remember having a real fucking out of body moment in that scene where I could see the, the choreographed steps. Yeah, I could see that there were these are composed shots. That's a shot. They stopped and that's a shot and that's yeah. a shot. This wasn't just Harrison Ford showing up on the day and just going, I'm going to go over here, follow me, I'm going to go over here. I had that kind of like that th- uh, third person view of, oh, there's a set going on here and there's people. And I just had the same thing that you had, which was like, I want to do that. I don't know what mm-hmm. that is, but that's what I fucking want to do. And that very much became the, not the moment, but a, a real awakening of this is my obsession. Film is my obsession. And it was throughout my teenage years. Until still to just say, I suppose. When did you when did you let on to others that that was your obsession? Because oh, years. for me, when I went yeah, privately I held on to I'm gonna work in film. Yeah. And uh, I didn't tell anybody about it because I didn't want the ridicule. I didn't want people to mm-hmm. tell me, Oh, you've got notions or your dream or whatever. I just didn't want to be dissuaded, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I remember clearly having to come clean and 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 tell my family that I was going to college to do film and video production. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering for you, did you have anything like that? Oh yeah. Where you had to come clean and say, dad, mom, I've got something to tell you. Well, I like yeah. film. Yeah. It, was, it is like that. It is like that. <laughs> it is. Even it is. throughout secondary school, I dared not tell anyone that I fucking loved films. And, but I, but I was going to the cinema and it was, emba- it was embarrassing. That's the that's the reality because everyone all the cool dudes were like because it's fantasy it's fantasy that's what it is it's and and particularly like my favorite films back then were were Star Wars and so that's yeah. even worse and Star Wars was out of favor like Star Wars was like what Star Wars it was this is before prequels it was gone from the lexicon yeah yeah um and I did have a moment when it when it came time to doing your filling out your CAO forms I did explore I did explore options for studying film in college like I was looking to see is there any way I could do this and but the there only, weren't any they really weren't there was some place in Dublin but that was all like you know it felt like it was you kind of had to be born into a film family have a portfolio have basically have a career already to get you into needed it needed like 720 points some, or whatever yeah for a regular <laughs> Joe like me who was like only an average student who mm-hmm. didn't who only used camera 
I actually, I'll have to tell you about where, where I got my hands on the camera. I and I expressed to my family. I said, "Look, I'm really interested in film." And there were, and there was, I you know my family aren't going to listen to this, but I can just say it. It was like going. Uh, I was kind of like, "No, that's not a great idea." So yeah. I made a private pact with myself, and my pact was I was going to get a degree in something sensible, and after I'd done that, I was going to try and do something in film, and that was a private pact with myself. And so I got into um, I got like computer science and I did my undergraduate degree in computer science and in college and it was mm-hmm. in it was during that period my obsession with film grew and grew and grew and grew even more mm-hmm. I started a film society in college and that opened up a whole world of people who are like minded as myself got me uh, I I set up a, I ran I set up a um, a small film festival for local relatively local you know f- young filmmakers. And got young filmmakers. And you were away from home at this stage, weren't you? Yeah, you were living. Yeah. yeah. So it's so when you have the I went away from to home. be yourself. Exactly. And I also met great, great friends in college who weren't into film, who weren't into anything arty. They were, you know, from all different disciplines. But I had, I had such a good small group of like-minded friends who encouraged me, and that was a big thing. Saw that I had a passion and I had a, an artistic ability. Uh, or not even artistic, but an instinct to, you know, to do this thing. So what's the story about a camera? The camera was my neighbor, Donald Murphy. He, who is in a, in a wheelchair, he was one of the first people in our parish I knew to have a video camera. And mm-hmm. I, I, once I saw a video camera, I just was like, fucking hell, this is the thing I want to use. And So was he your, your dolly cameraman he was my but he was yeah it was i don't know what dolly cameraman means but uh you know where you'd have a dolly track oh right for steady cam. <laughs> i should have done that actually that would have been a great idea so what i ended up doing was he was going off uh donald was he's a great neighbor like you know but i would i used to help him out in his garden and stuff like that during the summer months and all that sort of stuff and i would basically just just fucking tour around with him and because he went all over the country and uh, he was a really extrovert but Donald had a video camera so I became expert in Donald's video camera and he would go to these matches so I became the guy on the corner of the field videoing all the local GA matches and then we'd go, right. go to the pub afterwards and we'd show the the, the, t- the tapes of the matches and I got really good at following the, the, the you know a game I was I became really good and I had the technique down and everything but one of the funnest things about doing it was I, w- I discovered that I could take the viewfinder off the... Back then, you'd have to... It was like a camera that you had to hold to your eye. You know, like a really yeah. rudimentary th- thing. But if you took, screwed off the viewfinder, what you actually had was a little small little screen right there looking up at you. Like, you know, not magnified, but you could look at it holding it away from your face. So yeah. after matches, when, when we were going around the place or driving, going out of the match and stuff like that, Donald would stop and talk to every fucking Joe Soap. Usually any eccentric Joe, Joe Soap you would pass and try and raise them he would egg them on he would razz them he yeah. would just egg them on just get a reaction out of them and what I was doing is I was surreptitiously turn. this is before camera phones or anything like that I was surreptitiously yeah. turning on the camera and videoing these exchanges so these exchanges then once the match was played then these exchanges would play with these eccentric characters and it was it would fucking have the entire pub in stitches and we'd play them Fantastic. at home and so I then realized it was anyway it was just a 
I saw, oh, wow, look at the reaction we're getting from this bit of footage. And it was just getting yeah, people so you had an audience, an immediate audience reaction to something creative that you were doing. And it was a naturalistic uh, capture. It wasn't, you know, the way in a lot of those things, how are you, Joe? You know, if you had guys yeah, with a microphone. It was yeah. just so, but this was, people didn't know they were being filmed. I know it was completely exploitative, but people didn't know they were being filmed. And I, and um, anyway, I learned on, learned by using the camera how to, how to capture people <laughs> and use it and, and, I, and I had an audience and uh, yeah I love that that was great so when you went to college this was in Kerry wasn't it yeah I went to Trilly yeah Trilly so you came out of Trilly and you made that pact with yourself that you were going to work in your way into film in some capacity you were going to figure out a path for you in that what made you choose screenwriting uh, what happened was uh, when I was, I was saying, I met some great buddies in college. In in college, uh, when I was doing my computer course, one of the components of my computer course was uh, um, media. I think it was multimedia or something like that. And yeah, one yeah. of its little modules over the course of three or four years, whatever it was, was to do a short film. So we all, everyone in the class had to do a short film. And I fucking, it was just like, I was creaming myself just going, oh my God, I have a chance to actually... <laughs> And we had to use editing. We were kind of showed editing software and stuff like that for the first time. So it yeah. was my first hands, time with my hands on editing software. And um, I, I, as I mentioned already, I had one really great friend, Justin McDermott, who was always really encouraging of me. And he, I started sharing my writings with him, stuff that I was writing, like, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't stories. So this was while you were doing your, your undergraduate degree. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so back up a little bit. So you started writing stuff at that stage. I started writing stuff in my teen years. Writing Uh, what? The first thing I consciously remember writing with with an idea uh, was like Star Wars fan fiction. Uh, And these were short stories or scripts? The Star Wars fan fiction was short stories. But then, embarrassingly, I started writing about like crushes and how I felt about crushes. So I used to have like, I used to write, write poems and songs and stuff like that. And really embarrassingly, but really? I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would. Would you share them? Never. Absolutely <laughs> never. Although um, I had this friend, Colm, uh, Colm Lines, and uh, this is a side, a side, sidebar, but it's fucking entertaining. Colm was one of the, one of these guys who was deeply in love with one girl in our class, like his entire life. And yeah. Colin, you know, when you're at that age, you're afraid to to let anyone know how you feel uh, because you're you're afraid you would just get shot out of the sky and be and get trampled upon. Now, Colin was the opposite of that. Colin was openly expressed his adoration of this one girl all the fucking time, <laughs> like to everyone. Everyone knew it was like, oh, Colin's got a thing for her. And I remember one time uh, we had an English, uh, we were given an English essay to do over the weekend. And it was basically, how do you see your life as an adult being? Or basically, what's your what, what would you imagine your life as an adult being? Something like that. And Colm rang me on the Sunday night and he said, I, I want to read my essay to you. And I was like, wow, what is it? And he, he read his essay out. And his essay was basically, no, it wasn't basically. It was his future, a fictional future where he and he, the love of his life got married. And how, old were, how old were you? We were like 14. We were 14. Okay. Right, he was really risking his uh, status there. Yeah, and he sub- and he submitted this as his homework, and I just went, "Holy fucking shit, God, you fucking lunatic!" Like you know, he didn't give a fuck. 
He was just yeah. sharing all that stuff out. Did it work out in the end? Did never worked out at the end. It never. <laughs> it did not work out. Um, but I was the opposite of Cullum. I was doing stuff like that where I was just. I was, but I was. I was expressing all of my heart. Like it was just not just girlfriends, girls. I I, I had a, a crush on, but it was just basically any sort of extreme emotion. I was. Uh, just I was dealing with testing would, the elasticity of what you could put out there. How you could translate feelings into into words that could i suppose elicit responses yeah that's that was it man that was exactly it yeah so you you were writing short stories when you got to college and where was the transition into writing screenplays it wasn't until i i mentioned before that i had organ i basically had organized short filmmaker festivals not one short filmmaker festival and uh wasn't even a festival it was just like short filmmakers showing their stuff but basically through that I got to, uh, I said, oh, I'd love to actually be on a set. If you're making a movie, I'd love to like be there just to see how a film is made and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so they were just young lads just making films. And they said, yeah, no bother. So we stayed in touch. And that's how I ended up down in Cork City, like on these on these sets of like these short films that were being shot by these lads, guerrilla style, uh, off their own back. And uh so I was doing whatever I could. I was like production manager, whatever, production manager, just basically yeah, helping yeah. out and uh, mm-hmm. doing whatever I could. And I fucking loved that experience just running around. But it wasn't until I, when I was, I, I got a work placement in Dublin and uh, basically joined a group that were, you know, film enthusiasts and whatever. And they were, they were organizing, to, they, they were trying to make a short movie around the Dublin Film Festival or something like that. And, uh, and I remember we got the location and uh, we had everything set up, equipment and actors and all set up. And the night before the shoot happened, there was no script. Like the guy who was supposed to write the script hadn't written the script or it was okay. just. And so I remember we had to stay up, me and him staying up all night long. And I was like, oh, fuck, man, we have to have the script locked down for tomorrow. And I just remember being with him working on the script. And I just felt so comfortable in that space creatively the night before the shoot. And so I just went, oh, this feels good. And I just kind of, I, want, I had the urge to push him and off. Did you know, did you know what a script looked like? Did you, were you just winging it? Barely. I barely, I, because it was early days of the internet. So scripts weren't uh-huh. really readily available. So I, no, I didn't really know what the format of a script was at all. Uh, so, so it was, was handwritten. It. You know, we think we had a laptop. I think we okay. had some sort of a computer. So it was on, yeah. it was on like a Word doc. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's when, the and someone some one of these filmmakers said to me said you know what you should really think about writing screenplays and that's where the, someone said it to me yes that's one of the big questions I, I have though I was building up towards who was the first person who noticed that you had a knack for it and said something that stuck with you that compliment so it was that guy was it I would say I would go back I would say Justin McDermott was the one uh, a buddy of mine who believed in me and said, I have, uh, I have some, I have a voice and I need to use it. And I have a, and he, but he wasn't from the film industry. He was just a friend who believed in me and said, you have a talent. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know how to guide you, but he encouraged me and said, you really need to chase this. You really need to pursue it. And, uh, um, and it was and it stuck with you and it stuck with because me. Absolutely. Yeah. What I think is sort of crucial in everybody's journey is that, you need those moments of validation Definitely. to fuel you to the next one. Yeah, it's more kindling for your fire, I think. Definitely, it's so important. Absolutely, it's so important. Just having those. Just even it can be. And then if it was like the odd professional, 
who gave me a kind compliment at uh, in those right. early stages as well. So who would that have been? Who were the, the, um, the professionals? You know, and what were they complimenting you on? Was it what, a script? I remember, well, we have uh, someone you know as well, uh, uh, Max Lacane. He was a, a filmmaker down in Cork. Uh, mm-hmm. He made like he 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 made these really experimental films. But I remember sharing one of my story ideas, a couple of my story stuff with him, and I remember his him responding. He says, "No, you really." He was he's a lovely, genuine, open-hearted guy, and a really yeah. talented filmmaker. And he, I remember him speaking so kindly about my stories and the types of things I was writing in my stories, and that gave me uh, fuel. Then I remember when I was in Galway, I moved up to Galway after my, in my kind of like my last years where I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I moved to Galway. And, um, why were you lost? What, what do you mean by lost? Like you, well, I, you, you at this stage now, you knew what you wanted to do, but you yes. probably were on the outskirts. You didn't know how to solidify that. There was, I finished, I, I graduated with a degree in computer science. And yeah. did com- you like it? I can. Comp- no, I, my interest in film just grew and grew and computer science just kind of went by the uh-huh. wayside. I just, I fucking scraped by. I don't know how I got it. There was only, a, I think, a 10 of us graduated or something like that. Out of I it. still don't even know what computer science is. Oh, it's basically, it's computer shit. <laughs> it's just like coding. <laughs> that's what call it. Yeah. I got um, an undergraduate degree in computer shit. <laughs> that's it. Um, and when I graduated, the, the, fir- the first major IT bubble burst. So people who had failed the previous year had failed and left college and walked into IT jobs, walked into IT jobs w- without a mm-hmm. degree. And the following year, me and my fellow graduates uh, uh, graduated with our full degrees and we walked out and the, market, and the marketplace was just empty. Dead. Dead. Yeah. It was basically all these companies had popped. Uh, all these people were out of work. And so all, any sort of IT jobs that were emerging were only looking for people with five years plus experience. So mm-hmm. there was no space for a new a new graduate. So I was unemployed. And mm-hmm. I and but I, I spent a year working in Extravision, probably in, in Mallow. And that mm, was okay. a great. I love that job. It was fantastic. But it was also that period where when I was also working for the county, I was doing two jobs at one time. I was working for the county council as well at the same time, which was great crack. Fucking brilliant experience. And what were you doing for for them? I was basically in walking. Oh, sorry. I was working in a local area office as an administrative clerical officer. I was. Okay. I was. A, um, so a chilled out job then. It was actually fucking really. It was actually really intense because hectic it was hectic because it was a local area office so you had to mm-hmm. do all the administration stuff of the office but also you had crazy people coming in complaining to you on the phone and walking into the office so you were dead right. it was hectic because you you were hit in all angles by everything so that was going no wrong. time to uh use the work computers and get some writing done no zero <laughs> zero time um but in that period i was also still in touch with the, the cork filmmakers working with them and said, I'm going to give this a fucking go. I'm going to do something. So I said, what am I going to do? I'm going to move. Justin, my buddy, already said, he was working in Galway at the time. I says, I'm going to move up to Justin and I'm going to get into Galway. And Galway's a great place because they're the Galway Film Flat. I'm sure they're going to meet some like-minded people up there. And yeah. uh, maybe I was going to do a degree in, I was going to do another degree in film and TV or something like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. That was the big plan. I went up to Galway. I interviewed for the film and TV course told them what, where I was doing and what, uh, what I, I was, you know, involved in short films and all that. And they just went, why are you doing this course? So <laughs> they rejected me. Why? What did they mean by that? They said, well, you seem to be doing grand as it is. You just keep going as you are. And I went, 
but I want to hmm. I want to study film and he went no you're alright just keep going as you are and uh, and I, I got like a no so would that be the first major rejection that sort of knocked you back yeah it did knock me back a little bit but it didn't but not a major amount because okay. I felt like oh I'm still the out like I'm still an outsider they didn't actually I had that feeling of no this is what I want to do it wasn't and, a fair shake yeah I didn't I just think they just I, I felt like oh, I'm just not I'm just not ticking their boxes I'm not ticking mm-hmm. all the boxes I'm still going to try and do this somehow. But I still consider those years my outsider years. But So when did you write your first script? I'll tell you how I wrote my first script, right? In that period when I moved to, to Galway, I was living with mm-hmm. my college friend Justin and another friend of mine, Sean Mishdale, right? We ended up sharing a house together. Fucking the crack was mighty, right? <laughs> when I was, and the lads were, when we were doing our undergraduates, the lads were doing health and leisure and just drinking. And uh, being sport, playing sports, and but Justin was had a creative bent, like he was big into music and poetry and all this sort of stuff. And I spotted that Sean, the other guy, he was a natural performer, not like someone who told jokes at the bar. But he was when he was doing bits, he was creating scenes. And I used to always say, Sean, you're a fucking natural actor. So in my short movie that I had to do in college. I cast mm-hmm. Sean as the lead in my short movie, right? Which wasn't okay. a, which wasn't wasn't even scripted. It was just like I'm just getting random shots here and do school stuff. And he was natural on screen, and he, that triggered the, the acting gene in him. And he went and he studied acting when he went out of college. Really? Yeah. And he not only that. The following year, when we all moved to Galway, he got um, cast in Rusnaroon, the Irish soap opera. And he now is oh. still in Rusnaroon. 20 years later, he's still a regular actor in Rusnaroon. Wow. Yeah. But when we were all living together, myself, Justin and Sean, I had a camera, right? One of those, uh, just a camcorder. And we, I've seen one of these shorts, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. We were doing yeah. every night or a couple of nights a week. We were doing bits. We were doing fucking sketches and just recording them. And it, they got more, at the start, it was just like us playing characters and just talking shit to the camera. But they got, they, as we went on over the two years, they got more and more elaborate they got more and more, like, I started editing them. There was like, I remember writing a script for one of them and all this sort of stuff. And I'd say in that era was my first time where I actually wrote an actual short screenplay for us to, to shoot. Did you buy screenwriting books? Did you pick up screenwriting software somewhere? You were just still winging it, just thinking, well, this is... I think I got right. Robert McKee's book at that stage and it just didn't really make any sense to me. It just confused okay. me more. You didn't pick up like the Gorilla's handbook or anything like that? Nah. No. Nah. Okay. So you'd obviously been messing about with writing stuff. But when did you write your first feature script? I wrote my first feature script. I eventually had a turnabout in Galway, right? The, working with the lads, we created our own little mini production company. It was called McCalmish Productions. And it was just okay. us doing our own shit. And it was like okay. just like jackass stuff. But it wasn't jackass stuff. It was fucking great stuff. Like it was fun. It was just... Just having just young lads having great fun. But it was obviously us like harnessing our creative energies or expressing our creative energies. And the yeah. lads were really supportive of me as well. And I, I was knocked back by the, it was the Galway, the, the film and TV course anyway, I got knocked back. Mm-hmm. But a, uh, about a year later, my my girlfriend, uh, Karen, who now wife, she had spotten, spotted a course in, uh, a, a, a part-time course for screenwriting. Uh, that was going to happen in the writer's centre up in Galway and she said look here this is like one night a week for, for eight weeks and it's like 80 euro and uh, she said you should do it and I said fuck it you know what I'll do it I'll give it a go it'd be great to just try and brush figure out what the screen screenwriting is 
And so I did eight weeks of this course. The guy who was teaching it had come from the masters in screenwriting in the in UIG. And at the I just felt my in that course, doing this course, it was just us in a room with three maybe five or six other young students and this one teacher. Yeah. I just felt myself at home. At home. I felt myself. This is I, every night I went in there. I didn't never felt out of my depth. I just felt happy. I loved the creative energy that was going on. I just fucking loved it. And we had to mm-hmm. kind of come up with our own little outlines or stories for each session, come in with our pitch our stories. And at the end of that, at the end of that, he said to me, he he um he said, Would you think about doing the masters in screenwriting? And I was like going, ah oh, fuck it. So he had spotted something in me as well. And I went, Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fucking very good. So I applied to do the masters in screenwriting in uh, in University of Galway. And uh Got my and it was a big portfolio, so I said I was going to f- focus on building this portfolio. I was at the time I was working in a factory in a medical device factory, making heart, yeah. heart balloons and heart stents and stuff like that. And um, I f- put my head down for a good six months, built up my portfolio, sent it Which in. Which was what was the portfolio? What what did it, it was, entail? There was uh, I think short a short script or a couple of short scripts, mm-hmm. a couple of reviews, and maybe outlines for stories for a feature. Like, you know, just kind of so basically pitches for a feature, reviews and stuff okay. like that. Uh, I submitted my application and uh, a couple of months later, uh, the post came. I opened up the letter and I read it and it said, you've been rejected. <laughs> so I didn't get oh, it. There. <laughs> I was like, God. oh, for fuck's sakes. And I remember that feeling of really being knocked by that one. I was like, going, fuck it. I really put a lot of work into that. Because now you had properly tried and you'd failed. Yeah, yeah I properly tried. And I think I submitted like our, some of our, some sh- shorts I'd edited together and stuff like that. And I submitted that as well. And then even I remember at the time, Karen going, this isn't right. Well, like, you know, you're made for this. You're fucking made for this. Like, you know, but then two weeks later, another letter came in the door. And uh-huh. what happened? I want to tell you this story. When I was yeah. in, when I was in fucking in the medical device factory at the same time, it became, I was given an opportunity to kind of like go up the ladder in that place. And this, um, my right, my supervisor had said to me. She said, she said, there's a job opening up in in quality assurance. It's a computer related job. She'd obviously spotted me that I'm I was comp- really competent because mm-hmm. I was taking on more, doing more than I probably should have. And she said, there's a great job there, a computer job in quality assurance. Yeah, I've had a word with them. They the head of there uh, at that place, and she thinks you'd be a great fit for it. Get the application form, fill it in, and do the do the do the thing, and you're fucking shooing. So it was crunch time, though. You had to make a decision, one make, path or the other. Yeah. So what happened was, I filled in the application, went and did the first interview, nails the first interview because, uh, and I got called back for a second interview. Went and did the second interview, nailed the second interview. Do you think you were nailing those interviews because you weren't a hundred percent invested in getting that job? Oh, definitely not a hundred percent invested because I was thinking at the same time, oh, the fucking masters is coming down the road. And then I got yeah, the rejection yeah, yeah. from the masters and I went, oh, it looks like it's going to be quality assurance for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And then my supervisor came down to me after the second interview. She came down to me. She says, well, do you you did those interviews, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I, I've done two interviews now. And she says, um, just the, the, the woman who is the head of quality assurance says that you didn't show up for those interviews. And I went, no, I was I did two interviews with HR for the job. She's, you know, I left. And she says, yeah, it's just odd. And then about a half, she said, I'll get back to you. It's obviously a mix up. And she, about a half an hour, she came back to me and she said, Will, you've successfully gone through two rounds of interviews for the wrong job. (laughs) 
I had what they had put my application in for the wrong position. So I had somehow gotten through two rounds of interviews for a job title that I had no idea what the job was. No idea. <laughs> that is like the perfect pitch experience. We are pitching on a on a screenwriting job and it's all fucking make believe. Yeah. Wow. So what happened then? So I got down to the last interview and okay. I went into this last interview going, I've no idea what this job was. And it was me and one other person. And I didn't get it. And then okay. I, and between that, I also didn't get the, the NUIG thing. And I went, oh, for fuck's sakes. But then so two, two blows at once. Two blows at once. But two, this all happened in the space of a few weeks, the whole lot. And then about two weeks later, another letter showed up at my door. And it was from NUIG again. And, it's, and it was a letter saying, uh, we're happy to say that on the second round, we'd like to offer you a position to do the Masters in Screenwriting in NUIG. Sloppy seconds. Sloppy seconds. But it was fucking, it was destiny. So you did a Masters in Screenwriting? I just spent the next year doing a Masters in Screenwriting. One I the, did not know that. One of the happiest years of my life. I fucking loved it. Made some great allies, made great friends there. See, uh, that's the thing about going to film school or doing anything with a, a community that's into film is it's about the allies. You need allies. Exactly. Right. So you must have written a, a feature script then in that master's program. Yeah, that was that was what, my thesis. That was my thesis project is to write a feature screenplay. What was that script called? That script was called, I'm trying... I think it started off as called, it was called The Curator, okay? And it was okay. awful, right? It was a dark rural comedy. I don't know where it is. And maybe here, it might be here someplace. I haven't read it in many years, but I remember the concept of it. The, the pitch is, it's a story set in a very rural community akin to where I grew up. And in Ireland? In Ireland, yeah. And it was... Based on my experiences working in the, the, the local area council office, the story is focused on this guy who was a water curator, who is a guy who basically manages the water supply for a whole area. He manages mm-hmm. drinking water and like, you know, where water's disappearing to and all this sort of stuff. But this water uh, curator is the son of the previous water curator, who is a fucking demonic overlord and uh, kind of holds the community, <laughs> would have held the community hostage. To, like, it would have turned off the drinking supply to an entire town if he didn't get his way in the community. So, so Chinatown, but with a fantasy element. Yeah, <laughs> so this guy, I think, I can't remember if he killed, his, I don't think he killed his dad, but he basically, yeah, his dad dies and he ends up dumping his dad's body in the town's drinking water supply and poisons the town. In, I think that's kind of how it went. But right. it was a plot monster. It was all over the shop. It was everything I didn't want it to be. But people always found the pitch for it and how I spoke about the story to be funny. And I was supposed to be, uh, it was a dark comedy. And I was <laughs> leaning into the, like, you know, is a body poisoning a town and crazy shit was happening in the town. I don't remember what went down. But but the the, the pivotal moment really was when I was writing that screenplay, I knew I hated it. And I knew I didn't want to write the screenplay. And I wanted to write something that was simpler and leaner and more honest to how I felt. Because I felt I was was, good with that screenplay. I thought I was trying to be I was trying hard to be funny and edgy, but also it was just a bit fucking tropey. And instead I went, no, I want to write something honest and real. So you finished that script. That was part of your master's thesis. Yes. You got out of doing that. Yes. You graduated. And when did you decide to write something else? You you were totally committed at this stage. You were all yeah. in. 
yeah, it was while I was writing that thesis, I got the idea for the next thing. Okay. And I said, right, I finished the, I finished the fucking masters and it was back out into the real world. And I went mm-hmm. back into the factory, the medical device factory, which I had, which I had left to go and do my masters. And thankfully they took me back in with open arms. They said, oh, you're a great guy. You applied for the wrong job before you left, but we'll <laughs> still have you back. We we're happy to have yeah, you back. Yeah. So I went back in there, but I went back in there with a focus to continue on. There was a writer's group that was happening in Galway. And I wanted to, I said, I'm going to try and be, uh, get myself involved with that. I was going to try and submit to some applications to the Galway Pitching Award, which was going to happen the following summer. And I said, I set these kind of like... What year is this? Put this in context for us. When are we talking? 2000 and maybe 2005, 2006, around then. Okay. So I spent a year working in, I spent more than a year. I went back to work in the medical device factory and I started focusing on working on this new story which was this uh, story that was much more simpler and leaner and more honest to myself. And that idea came because I had gotten, during my master's, I had won some scholarship to do a, a go to a writer's retreat, which was fucking mental, but it was fucking great. And the writer's retreat was basically uh, a week out in Clifton, out in West Galway, in this fucking okay. Faulty Towers-esque a hotel. One of the kind of people running it was John Houston's daughter, Allegra Houston, not um, Angelica, but Allegra Houston. And uh, a kind of a, 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 a Native American kind of poet uh, writer called James Navy, right? And okay. uh, it was a whole week in this place where there was no TVs. There was no, there was electricity, but like in the bar, it was just candle at night. And it was just a really odd eccentric place. Ugh. It was place was haunted as well. We had fucking were, the place was properly haunted. Um, my first time where I truly felt I experienced uh, we encountered or uh, experienced ghostly happenings as well. Okay. But in doing that in that week, one of the exercises I started off quite cynical about the whole thing to begin with. Uh, but by the end of the week, I felt my myself opening up and kind of slowing down to the pace and just kind of like right going with whatever kind of groovy act, um, exercises they were doing. But they were like, oh, just color in a picture. Color in what's, you know, you were just sitting there with crayons, just coloring in pictures. Went, oh, so like, you would be quite cool. susceptible to a cult. Oh, yeah. No, at the start, I was totally <laughs> cynical to it. I was like, oh, here I am coloring pictures. But one of the exercises was they said, um, write. They said, oh, we want you to write for 15 minutes about something about something from your home and I went oh Jesus here's another one of these fucking things and they said they said listen this is just going to be for you so just let yourself open up and just write about home and what happened was was I started writing about this green armchair at home and this green armchair which I hadn't thought about for fucking 20 years at that stage all of a sudden was was an armchair that was in our good room in our front living room and it brought mm-hmm. back a memory of me sitting on this armchair where uh, on a particularly fucking awful day where this nun, this demonic nun from my childhood came out to our home uh, in a period where my dad, my dad was very ill for a number of years when I was a kid and he almost died and thankfully pulled through. But it was looking pretty ropey for a, quite a while for my dad. And I remember this nun coming out to sit across from me. My parents weren't there. And she sat across me. I was sitting in this fucking green armchair. This nun who was... This actually happened? This actually happened. This nun fucking... She was a wicked bitch of a woman. She taught five-year-olds and beat the shit out of them, broke arms and all this sort of stuff. But she was really kind to old people, ironically enough. And she came out and uh, she sat across from me to basically say that, oh, your your dad's not well and he's not going to make it, you know, sort of thing. And... uh, 
and I re- and she was being quite kind, which I could I was still terrified of her. But I remember I was sitting on that armchair, and I remember this watch. I was fit. I was nervous, so I was fiddling with the strap on my watch. And yeah. She fucking that old wicked monster of a teacher just emerged from her, and she she just kind of snapped at me. She says, "Stop fiddling with your watch." And just like, and I was a grown, like maybe I was fifteen or something at the time, or fourteen. Oh, or 15. really? Okay. And I just remember being fucking shocked by this. I was scared of her first of all, and then I went, "You fucking mm-hmm. bitch!" So her basically, true colors came out. Yeah. So I had I wrote my piece, which was a whole spiral of memories around this green armchair and this event was in that writing as well. And I wrote it and I went, Jesus, forgot all about that, you know. And uh, when we finished writing, the James Navi or whatever the the, the the guy who was mentoring said, "Okay, everyone, now we're going to read our pieces to everyone." And I went, "Oh, oh. fuck!" I thought this was fucking private. So yeah, that's that's kind of a bit duplicitous. Maybe he said, maybe I misheard them or something like that. But I was under the impression that was private. But when everyone read their things, and when it came around to me, and I read out like my three or four pages of this whole spiel about the green armchair, I could feel at the end of it the fucking like you could feel the, the, room, the room changed. The room changed, and I, I had everyone was gripped, and and what someone said, she said, "You've got more to say on this, don't you?" And I went, "Oh, maybe I do." So that little green armchair story ended up inspiring the feature film story that became that I worked on when I graduated so that's another moment where somebody has validated you being on the right path yes when did you write My Brothers that became My Brothers so My Brothers was inspired by that moment yes yeah and I knew it myself I knew myself once I'd written that thing I had touched a a kind of an an electrical an exposed electrical cable inside myself right and just to to remind people My Brothers is your first feature film credit yes yeah a live action film which came out in 2010 yeah it was released in 2010 yeah yeah Uh, so what happened was I took that idea and I said right I took that idea of the green armchair and those events and I started to fashion a story and I went to which became My Brothers which became My Brothers through the process of the great process of the writer's room the writer's room in Galway I took that story in as a treatment a couple of times to them and got notes back from that group so they were really helpful in 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 shaping that Christian O'Reilly who was a wonderful man and a wonderful writer was and his wife Alva were a part of that group and leading that group and really encouraged me as again more validation really encouraged me in the process and gave me harsh so, notes so they gave you harsh notes so yeah so how long did it take from that moment in in 2000 so it took it took four years yeah, to get to was, the, the, oh yeah, it took the four shooting years. of the film yeah because a year later the following summer I submitted that story to the Galway Fitch, uh, Pitching Award I got shortlisted I almost didn't submit it because I was so scared and on the last right, day right so this now is one of the things that I can draw a lot of parallels with your journey but this is one thing where I would not have been able to do it so tell people what, what you did because I find this incredibly impressive but go on I didn't know. I don't know what's impressive, but what happened was uh, didn't you have to do a, a sort of a town hall pitch in yeah, front of a lot yeah. of people? No, oh, Will, I couldn't yeah. do that. I couldn't do it. Oh, That's man. like X Factor for, for doing a pitch. Oh, well, I'll tell you, this is doing a, fact. a pitch in front of two or three people is is stressful enough, but doing it in front of a, a whole load of people. I'll tell you the gory details. So I spent basically a year focused on developing the story. Uh, I had a, a deadline to, to submit the application in. And uh, on the day of the actual application deadline, I said, I backed out and I said, I'm not going to do it. And the person my the person who was working next to me, who had seen me work on this all year long, 
has mm-hmm. said, if you don't fucking submit that application, I will kick your arse on a day. Right. And it was only because they actually said that uh, that I, I, I put the, sent the application off. Two weeks later, or a couple of weeks later, then I got words that I'd been shortlisted. So five people get shortlisted. Now, I've been in the selection process of this. On the, I've been on the other end of it, uh, mm-hmm. where you're watering these things down. And they can get somewhere in the region of 150 applications for this pitching competition. Mm-hmm. So I've been whittled down to the shortlist of five. Then... I immediately, it was two, from when I got the word that I've been shortlisted to when the pitch was happening, it was two weeks. I immediately got sick, like sick with stress and worry. And that, yeah. and, and this is, might not, this might be too graphic, but I got really sick. I had to, anyway. So you got the squits? Yes. In that general, uh, yeah. In that general area of the region of the body, it was fucking, okay. it was nasty. I will say this, it was nasty. But you got down to your goal weight, so you looked fantastic <laughs> on the night. <laughs> kind of. But I'll tell you what I did do was I rehearsed the shit out of that fucking pitch. I rehearsed the shit out of it. I went to it. There was two writers groups. I actually. How did you rehearse? Did you rehearse by yourself? Did you pitch it in front I, of others? I did, I'll tell you, I, I, I wrote it out. And I, I, mm-hmm. I started talk, talking about it first of all. Then I, then I narrowed that. I took those bullet points and I tried to shape it down into an actual written script. But before I did that, I actually went into the writers group, an alternative writers group, which was alien to me, where there was all, no, I didn't know any of the people in the room. And I pitched it raw in that room and fucking failed miserably. Like just, yeah. I just died to death. I came out of that even more stressed. So I worked and I would, I would pitch it to a, a timer. And uh, and I actually had wrote out a script for myself, and I just I would like literally rehearse it to an empty room. I'd rehearse it to Karen. I'd rehearse it to anyone who would fucking listen to me on a to a So timer. think of this, right? This is something that is putting you through immense stress. It's really really difficult to do in a natural circumstance, and you're doing this like the the journey that you've come on from wanting to make a private pact with yourself to now having to publicly stand up there and say I've got the goods and here it is. Yeah, on the day, and it was an audience. It was about maybe a hundred plus people in the audience, and uh, each of the people went up to um, do their pitches. I was the last one to go up, and I remember when my name got called out to go up. I remember I I had this vision of a white sheet with all the all my script on it, and the white sheet just vanished, like all the words just vanished from the white sheet. And I walked up to the podium, and I was like going just blank, nothing, blank, just nothing there, just nothing there. And I went up to the microphone. And I'd rehearsed it so much that I remembered I could like reflexively say the first sentence. And I said the first sentence of my pitch. And as soon as I said the first sentence, the second sentence came out and the third sentence, because I'd rehearsed it so much, it just mm-hmm. all poured out and it all poured out. And at the end, I remember looking in the audience and I could see people wiping their eyes. I had people crying in the in the, in the the audience. Oh my God. Yeah. I it was that bad. That. It was... <laughs> Oh, I got a, no. I got a massive round of applause, and I just had that feel of of like, oh, I fucking nailed it! I think I fucking nailed this one, and uh, yeah, and, and you won, didn't I you? I won that, yeah, I won that, yeah. But I felt I fucking nailed it on the day, and um, so never- what did that do for the project? What was the the big lift that that gave you or gave the the, the film? A huge, uh, huge springboard because off the back of that, then I got in touch with the Irish Film Board and talked to their development person, uh, Andrew Meehan, and set up a meeting to say, look, I've won the Pitching Award. Can I come in and talk to you about my project? He said, yeah, come on in. 
and I pitched him the whole thing and I shared, shared him my one page and he went, yep, send in an application. Um, uh, I look, hopefully you'll, you'll pass. And so an application for, to basically- A first draft development loan. I was successful in that. So basically I had the film board behind me who had given me money for the first time. So the pitching award was like five grand. So that was the first time I'd been paid for anything. And I went, holy shit, yeah. I made up the story and I've got five grand for it. Holy shit. And then I did the, got the first draft development loan. It was something like maybe 12 grand or something like that. And I was still yeah. working. At, I was still making heart stints and all this sort of stuff. So I spent the next the, the following year uh, working on that. Uh, they uh, appointed or they recommended Paul Fraser, who uh, co-wrote a lot of Shane Meadows' screenplay. Shane Meadows was uh, As your script, script editor. editor or whatever it was. So he gave me notes on a couple of, uh, a couple of the drafts. And on the last one, on the last notes uh, session, he said, wow, this is f- fucking amazing. If you're looking for a director, I'm interested in directing a feature. And he said, would you consider me? And I went, yeah, okay. And uh, and the film board read the script. Andrew Meehan, I, I, about a year later, I sent the script back in and Andrew Meehan uh, rang me. I'll always remember uh, he. Uh, I was sitting in the, the line making heart stints. And I could, you're not supposed to, you're, I'm all gone, gone down in white because it's a clean mm-hmm. room, gloves, hats and all this sort of stuff. And I could feel my phone vibrating in my pocket. I went, oh shit, I knew he was going to read the script this weekend. I was like, I can't check my phone. I can't check my phone. So I kind of said, I need to go to the toilet. And I gone down, went out. I checked my phone. I saw it was from the Irish film board. And I rang him back. And I'll always remember, I was standing in the, a dirty uh, car park and I remember Andrew Meehan uh, saying... What, what was the weather like? Was it cold? Was it, it was, sunny? It was, it was sunny. It was wet, but it was sunny. It was summertime. And he said, I rarely make these phone calls, but he said, I just want to say that I finished your script at two in the morning last night and it was the second script I've ever cried reading and oh. said it's beautiful. And he said, I want to help you get this film made. So... He said, but he said, just remember this because this this doesn't this doesn't happen like this very often. And mm-hmm. uh, he was absolutely fucking right because that's the only time I've ever had one of those fucking moments of oh my god, the film border behind this. So um, with that's the- huge, Will. So huge. think about that journey you've gone on. Yeah, and you get to that moment where you get that phone call, and then your first film is made. I have a, a few remaining questions for you. Yeah, and that is, what was it like being on the set? of your first film first day on the set was so thrilling like it was that the, the first day was just I couldn't believe it I just couldn't couldn't believe that all that, that all this was coming they were tr- that people had taken the words I'd put on the page and they were trying to make it happen I remember being on the in the house which they had found that was going to be their their, their house in the movie and um, mm-hmm. I remember uh their first shot was an exterior. I can still remember the first shot in my first film. It was an exterior shot. And I, I remember I was in the first floor of the little house and they were shooting in the backyard. And I just looked down, I could see this big camera and the kids were walking down this little laneway that they made. And I just went, holy shit, this is magic. This is amazing. Yeah. So I was such a, a green, earnest, just um, bouncing lamb uh, all through that first, uh, all through that. Look, it was a difficult shoot because it was awful weather and they were under a fierce time pressure and all that. But it was just such, such a wonderful experience to actually kind of see. Oh, fuck, people are making, people are turning my script into a fucking real thing. It was amazing. It really was. What advice did you get along the way that stuck with you that you still find some truth in and you would impart in others? Uh, the thing, I don't think it was direct advice, but the thing that I learned that I stick with is that if something, well, if something is resonating with you, 
if it's striking an electrical cord inside you, a project or something about a story, there's something mm-hmm. there. Um, that's what I'm talking about, the, the, the green armchair. I knew when I wrote that, I, I touched on something. I went, oh, fuck, that's that's fucking strong. There, there's, I'm, I'm getting a strong kickback from that. And that resonated. And that one, that was the first thing I learned. I was so lucky to actually learn it, that it was a, a Quite true, early on as well. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, I developed the pain, my own painful truth um, theory from that, which is just another way of saying whatever. Anyway, but basically, I that was my guiding compass uh, when I was developing all my other stuff. If I didn't have that emotional, painful truth or that resonance in a story, then usually there wasn't anything there for me to get excited by. Some writers, if they're nervous to share something, then they know that they're on the right track. Yeah, yeah. There's a nakedness. You have to feel exposed. If you feel exposed then you're 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 in the right you're you're in you're in uh original territory you're in uh yeah you're, you're in personalizing goods. it to the point where if it doesn't connect with people it's going to 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 really sting the other advice kevin i would give is i would never have considered myself an outgoing confident uh just uh i i'm a very sh- i would say I'm a, I'm a shy person that's what i would say how i how i, I see myself as and I think the filmmaking industry seems to, I suppose, support or it seems to be the land of extroverts and big shouty people. What, what yes. I think the best writers and some of the best creators in Filmland are actually quite reserved, shy people. So Thoughtful. Being, yeah, thoughtful. So being shy doesn't mean that you can't work in this industry. It just means, you know, you have to find your place. Maybe you're an editor. Maybe you're, you know, you know, uh, but... Anyway, that's another thing that I've learned that I thought that I needed to be. Uh, oh, I need to be. It just takes making a private pact with yourself, sticking with it, and finding your tribe along the way. Yeah, man, that's a good summation. I think you've. Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> I agree with everything you said there. Find your people, and uh, yeah, and and make mini goals, make mini mini achievable goals. Uh, yes, that's that's the way forward. All right. Well, I thought that was um, a lovely little chat there, Will. So I'll. Um, I'll leave it at that. And maybe you can pick this up. Part two. <laughs> Part I, two. Yeah, I have another 15 years to go. That's the first, that was the first 15 years. <laughs> well, no, it was good to do it, Kevin. Good to do it. There we go. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. All right. Okay. Hope it didn't bore you. <laughs> no, you didn't. Paul, you need your help. I need you to help me drive Tommy's bread van. It's for Dad. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious, but we have to go now. And you're nicking the bread bag. Borrowing it. Can I come? There's no way in hell you're coming. I tell. If Daddy dies in the holidays, do we still get time off from school when we go back? I said first. Did not first, you retard? I am retarded. I don't get it. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Wow. They're lovely lads. Damn. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. What we were looking for. Jesus. What are you looking at? Charlie, kid, what's your name? Hello, ma'am. How is he? It's not good, I'm afraid. Can you see me, kid? Can you see me? Seeing us. Two of you get out. Quick, quick, quick. He hates us, Squally. 
He hates men and wishes we were never born. And he wants dead to be dead. Stop it! Stop it! Maybe if your father had given you a few carrots when you were young, lad, you would... Ah! Squally! Squally! Take it easy on... You're the spirit of dead, you know that? Wow. Take it easy on... I think it's dying. I'm afraid that they won't be able to remember dead like I do. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Willem. With the films and the, with the TV and the latest films. Something, 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 something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. <laughs> you okay. can't remember what? <laughs> oh my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits with Kevin and Willem. Talking TV <laughs> Okay, right. I'm going to find the fucking thing. Because it's going to be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it. That'll do. Because <laughs> it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened to it. I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought they hadn't listened to it yet. And then of yeah. course I was delighted with that and people hated it. <laughs> it's not it was it was it wasn't easy on the ears in a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice, so there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm 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 Hogus and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. Yeah, that's exactly it's good. Digital. So. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. I'm not, that. I've not. I've. I've not heard this. I swear to God. I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm. I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kevin Willem. About the telly and the latest film. Coming shy to the dynamic duo. Don't forget, now you owe three euro. Come off the stage, old That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened. How do you operate? I I I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet, and does I that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, so I'm saying you just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man. I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about should I start the timer? Is this have we just started? Start the timer because I'm rare okay. to go. 
I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster. Oh, very recently, it went. There's a Madam Web film, and I'm. What is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent. Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider-Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought... I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. Are you it's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvels? Of? Well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel two. It was just sort of like it was another one of those films that felt like Ant Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm-hmm. airless, and you know you just have sound stage after sound stage and. I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. We feel like yes, there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue, to the hairstyles, to the costumes, to the sets, to the music, to everything just feels... It's artificial, wafer-thin, just wafery, artificially, no sustenance, no satisfaction. You know protein in it whatsoever. You feel like, oh yeah. wow, I just, I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry. It feels like eating plastic. Okay. On the whole, it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them. Yet, I found The Flash really fun because it was—it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went to the Madam Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played that out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but they've almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I had to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Kathy was pushing back and... I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Catty here. This is actually grand. This is actually grand. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, 
it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character, and to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. <laughs> <laughs>